You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics. I'm your host, Dimitri Vitsa, the CEO and founder of Rock, Paper, Scissors. Music Tectonics is the podcast where we go beneath the surface of music and technology, and we're often looking at the seismic shifts. And today we're going to focus on one of those seismic shifts that we call Data Everywhere. And I have a great team, possibly the most people we've had on the podcast, there's four of us here, um, to join us uh, as well. Our trusty uh, co-host, Tristra Year Jaegers here. Hi, Tristra. Hey, good morning. And really excited to have the folks from Entertainment Intelligence here, uh, Greg Delaney. Hi there. Welcome. And you're here in Bloomington, which is yeah, I'm enjoying it. pretty cool to have you. And Eric Gilbert also with us. Good morning, afternoon, and evening. <laughs> it's podcast zone. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Global you are. <laughs> So great to have you guys here. You know, let's kick it off by, um, Greg, why don't, why don't you just explain a little bit about what you guys do, what entertainment intelligence is for those who have not yet heard about your groundbreaking oh platform. <laughs> sure thing, thanks Dimitri. Um, so entertainment intelligence really came about from a frustration over the amount of data that's uh, being produced and the fact that you just really can't manage it in one place. So um, after I left CrowdSurge's ticketing company, which I founded, uh, met Eric Gilbert at Essential Music, which went on to be sold to, uh, to uh, Sony, became part of The Orchard. <clears throat> um, and when we were there, we were really looking at streaming numbers, how we collect them, how we collate them with metadata, and really offer it up in a reporting platform that people could easily consume. That's what we do. Got it. Do you want to add anything to that, Eric? No, that's exactly what we do. <laughs> it? Well done, Greg. It's only, it's only been five years and I finally figured out what we do. And, and the users of the platform are? So predominantly, well, the main users would be people that own their own content. So people that deliver through the DSPs as opposed to, say, a scraping service. We collect directly on behalf of our clients. We're effectively a data management company for those clients. And they would be independent distributors, record labels, um, a few artists, but predominantly record labels and distributors. Got it, cool. Um, and we can get into a little bit about some of the kinds of data you surface and so forth in the conversation, but let's jump into our topic, which is data everywhere. And my concept here is that as things moved from physical to digital, from downloads to streaming, there's lots of new data points that are, first of all, available for the first time um, at a very, um, microscopic level, more so than before. Um, the granular level. The granular level, yeah. exactly. Um, you know, in the past, if you bought a, a record, a CD, you might not know anything other than the credit card number, and 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 the retailer is probably the one that actually knew the credit card number of the of the buyer. Or if they bought in cash, you pretty much knew nothing about them. You might, you know, your your uh, clerk might have seen their face, saw what T-shirt they had on, or interacted with them. But once they left the store. There was no more data tracking, right? And so in the digital world, all of a sudden, there's tons of data. And we can talk about a couple different categories. You know, we've heard a lot about the metadata side of the business. We've had some folks on our podcast uh, talking about that. We have an episode called uh, Love Letter to the Future, which is what Viva Sound calls metadata. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the idea that there's all this data that goes with an individual track or album about the artists, the credits, the producer could go at a deeper level as well with... Uh, it's also the user. It's the, the person who's actually um, streaming the track. So it's not just the metadata around the track itself, it's the actual user, where they are, their gender, their age, 
that all that sort of information. Would you refer to that type of data as metadata? Uh, it's a very interesting question. Um, I suppose it is actually, yes, but it's not referred to as metadata, but I suppose you could refer to it as metadata. It's like user metadata as yeah. opposed to content metadata. Yeah, yeah. yeah we actually, um, on top of just the, the catalog metadata, we now have things like a playlist library. So we build up a library of about 880,000 playlists that we monitor on a daily basis, but there's all the underlying data for that. So you know, who created it, who's consuming it, what's the general audience type? That is metadata, really. And then right. devices they're using, you know, if it's yeah. on a laptop, if it's on a mobile, um, those are different devices as well. It's funny, because in my mind, I was, I was about to express this idea of data everywhere of, on the express one hand, you yourself, have, Dimitri. <laughs> <laughs> we have the metadata around the content, and then on the other hand, you have all this data about the users and the usage of the, of the data. And then somewhere in between, you also have the information about the, the royalties and the payouts and the splits and that can get very complicated both depending on um, you know both the publishing and the master side but also on the territory side because it changes from territory to territory who owns or administers rights for any given track when there's multiple collaborators and then those ownership rights change over time and getting all the world's databases to catch up with that so that that kind of i think that part of that's sort of like tracking the payout royalty side is not the part that you guys are in so much, but this part that Eric, you brought up more about like, so who is listening? How are they listening? How much are they listening? Where are they listening? What type of platforms are they using to listen? That's the part where you guys kind of like specialize in terms of your platform, right? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's and we're at. one really interesting thing that you guys brought up in a previous conversation, um, you mentioned that before, basically labels didn't have to know who their fans were. They just had to know: uh, did the tickets sell? Did the records sell? Um, you know, were the radio stations playing it? And if it sold, awesome. If not, well, whatever. Yeah, the record industry, I think, really didn't care who the customer was uh, for decades, and this is when they could sell many, many you know, pieces of physical product, many, many CDs and vinyl before that. You know, if you sold 500,000 copies or something, they didn't care who the consumer was. That was just money in the bank. Whereas now it's really, really, really important to understand who the consumer is. And just for fun, I was wondering what you guys thought. Is it uh, the, sort of a chicken and the egg problem, right? Like you can't know your customers without this data. And Dimitri brought, you know, posed the problem extremely well with physical product and sales and finding out who was actually buying things. Um, but at the same time, now that you, you know, so you need the data, but once you have the data, you're kind of obliged to discover who your fans are because the data has arisen from this massive explosion of content and listening. So I'm wondering how, how as people who've been in this industry and been thinking about the data side for a while, where do you, where do you see that? Where's the chicken and where's the egg? I mean, was it the data that appeared that caused people to have to know who their fans were? Or was it the, the, that the, it was it the opposite, the other way around that they had to get the data? Um, it's, it's a great point because I suppose when, when you could just sell an album because it was in the stores and it was on the radio and that was it, then your mailing list was really the only thing you had to rely on because it was maybe telling, selling some t-shirts or helping out with ticket sales. But then as soon as the value of that music went down and down and down to you know, 0. 0.00000 pence or cents. Or, <laughs> <coughs> or euros. Or yen or, or whatever <laughs> you want to get to. Um, Shepherds. You had to really sweat that asset. And it's mm -hmm. like almost penny share trading. You know, you suddenly were looking, thinking, we need to milk every single fraction of a penny out of these or a fraction of a cent out of these. 
So you did need to know. You need to make sure that you were targeting people properly and getting conversion rates and getting them to come back or go to a show or buy a product or, or upgrade to a physical product. So, so what you're really saying is uh, the access to this data and how you use that data, the learnings from the data is what's going to dictate how you look yeah, at your marketing vital. spend and your return on investment exactly. from every piece of it. Well, yeah, I mean, things like Facebook posts, you don't want to get to the end of a couple of months or three months, sometimes six in the worst cases where you get your royalties and then go, oh, shit, we just, we've just gone spent five grand on posts and marketing. We've only made four on streaming. So if you can see in real time that you're below the curve on what you're spending, then stop sticking out the posts or do it a different way. So you can react to it in real time because the worst thing is to spend too much and not get the conversion rate or you know miss a target, miss an opportunity, something's happening over here and you're looking over there. You, know, you can be looking in the wrong direction and completely miss a, a sudden blip that you could have ridden the wave. And, and that's what we try and do is we have the concept of heartbeats and the whole point of a heartbeat is that something might be flatlining, deep catalog or whatever, suddenly it starts registering a heartbeat. And we'll tell you about it straight away because then you can react and you know, get on more playlists or do an announcement or you know, that type of thing. So let me ask you, Greg, when you think about this bigger picture of data, when we have this concept of data everywhere, I mean, we, you know, we're seeing reports of 40,000 releases a day on Spotify, for example. So just thinking <laughs> if there was just one piece of data for each song, that would be plenty of new data all the time. But there's, you know, probably thousands of pieces of data associated with each of these, especially as you multiply the exponential factors of listeners and, and royalties and, and uh, collaborators and all that kind of stuff, too. But when you think big picture, what haven't we talked about? yet in terms of just the the implications of a how much data there is now and b how much data we have access to as an as a music industry what are some other kind of um big picture kind of takeaways of there's all this data you mentioned the marketing the marketing side and looking at roi what what else if, if somebody came from the physical music world for example and all of a sudden they have this data what are some other implications for them or eric either of you well i mean it's really it's really i think it comes back to really understanding the consumer and the user you know there's this idea of lean forward and lean back right someone who's really you know actively engaged in listening to a track and someone who's quite passive in listening to a track that's a very different type of user and consumer and so you're going to target those people very very differently right they're not necessarily a super fan if they're, if they're passive, but they might be a super fan if they're seriously engaged. How can you tell whether somebody, from, from the data alone that you guys are able to service, how can you tell which one is a, is a lean back and there, which one is a lean There's still a lot of nuance with it, but I mean, so I guess some real life examples, um, if someone listens to something on a sleep playlist, that's you know in position. That's in position. That's pretty passive, isn't it? That's, so that's lean forward. Pretty <laughs> passive. That's, that, that's that's lie back, <laughs> not lean back. That's lie back. Um, so I mean that's that's a passive that's a passive listen, right? Someone who saves something to a collection, um, someone who searches for something directly, types in the artist's name. That's an engaged, active, lean forward uh, engagement. Mm. And and also the the concept of people obsess about things like skip rates. So oh, this track's being skipped a lot. But if you've got the individual user identifier, which we do, you can look and say, it's cool. That person's already saved the track. So they're going to skip it because they've already got it. So it's less of a worry. So you can then start splitting out even metrics like that and go, this is a bad skip because it's the first time they heard it and they skipped it. Oh, dear. Or, no, it's fine. They've heard it many times. So skipping is not a big deal. 
and that nuance that is something that you really have to break out because we're all you know we either have vanity metrics where we go oh, i've got a million streams and you go yeah but it's actually stream farming and it's the same or it's on a sleep playlist <laughs> or sleep playlist yeah <laughs> it's not actually anyone those people aren't going to go on and buy a ticket they're not going to get a t-shirt etc um, so so even even if it's stream farming or a sleeping listener you're getting paid for it, right? Sure, no, of course. Unless yeah. unless it gets flagged for fraud. Volpec yeah. is it would be a good example. Yeah. With their Sleepify album that was just all silence, and they got their fans to stream it, and they made a, quite a bit of money off of that for a minute. For, for, a, for a, yeah, tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands. Yes. But, the, but also with that, you know, people forget that that is butchering other people's content. If you yeah. stream farm, you're actually taking money out of the hands of artists that are because the the pool of money is just divvied up. Right. So effectively, you're you're robbing from the pot of people who've genuinely made but, music. But the case that you're actually making, Greg, is that the the fractions of pennies that you're making off the stream is not you're leaving money on the table. If you think that's all it's about, there's yeah. this other opportunity to convert these listeners and fans to spend money in other ways. Yeah, yeah and I mean, also, it, yeah, I mean, if you're an artist, you want a fan to be with you for your entire career, right? Uh, not just you know this one record or this one track you want to come on that journey with you as an artist right throughout your entire career hmm. so you mentioned skip rates as not being as deadly as some people might think if you have other data to show that they're mm -hmm. already engaged listeners what are some other little tidbits that uh record labels and artists might not realize are are some cool nuances that they should start paying attention to on the data um so we have a, a thing like the um average track streams per day on a playlist. So rather than looking at a follow account, which we've always said is a nonsense metric, it's just, it's not meaningful. If you've got a million followers, but your playlist is for Valentine's or Christmas or the NFL or the World Cup, of course it's got millions of followers, but they listened once. Or someone's come along and, and listened to a you know sad and dreary play, playlist because they were feeling a bit down. That was probably like one day and they've never listened again. People don't unfollow a playlist. So it's a meaningless metric. So we, we, we basically took all our data and, and said to all our clients, if we anonymize this and we use it for benchmarking, are you cool with that? And thankfully everyone said yes. So we're now generating basically indie benchmarks that rival what the majors do. And that's a good example is saying, okay, what does this playlist really generate per day? And how long does a track live on this playlist on average? So we can look at the tracks and how long they were on there for times that by the two and then say this playlist is far more valuable than this one it's um you know it's it's tightly curated i might be on there for 290 days i might only get 500 streams a day but the two combined make for much more value than a big bang you know active workout playlist that might get 10,000 streams a day but you're off there in seven days so people again they grab at the wrong metric sometimes they need to take it in context of what's going to really generate me more money or more audience or more awareness and then using those to actually go and get more so if you're on a good playlist and you know you're going to be on there a long time you've got time to go out there and say hey look you know this other playlist you should put my track on there because you know it's the same vibe it's getting good returns so use other things to to push your marketing I really like that in both that both of you have brought up the data as part of a long game. Usually data is talked about in the music industry or in marketing in general as part of a, you're in the heat of the moment, it's a campaign, I need to go pivot, I need to A-B test, I need to do these things really fast to make this short-term goal very successful. But you're saying 
there's really a long-term benefit to looking at the nuance, to understanding where the fans come from, what are their actual behaviors, what are the playlists actually doing for you, and taking this into account as you build an artist's career. And I think a lot of indie labels do have a profound interest in that. Um, why, you know, how did you discover this longer-term perspective as you were looking at data? I think it's really easy to get lost in the, in the moment. Well, well I, I mean, I, I mean, I ran record labels. I mean, I've, I've been, you know, I'm a music publisher still today. So I think I come from that world where it's in the, the, the actual, the relationship between the artist and the fan is really, really important, right? And that journey that, you, that, they, that the fan comes along with you is really, really important. So maybe it's the background. Um, and also I think um, exploring, you know, what type of audience you're drawing to, say, legacy artists. So now with streaming, Deep Catalog is doing great. Uh, you know, we work with Concord, the, our biggest client, and um, the number of young audience listening to Credence and things like that. And uh, it's interesting, actually, when I was doing the ticketing um, business, we did some work with the BBC, and they had a team, BBC World, not World Service, but BBC World, and their job was to license across all content. And we were talking to them, and they were saying, they actually have a remit, for instance, to look at a young, um, young audience and think how do we get them into uh, Top Gear their car yeah. program and Formula One and so they bought out a children's you know I can't remember it was like Teddy the Racer or something they bought out a, like a Bob the Builder kids mm -hmm. cartoon racing car driver but then they can look at the audience and start upselling and start thinking I'm going to have that viewer for the rest of their life and what content can I get to make sure that they stick with me and labels and, and collaboratively as well, people could be doing this. If the industry came together and said, okay, we need to know who's listening to Credence Clearwater Revival. Okay, well, you know, I can't remember his name, Willie Nelson's son. Um, sorry, apologies. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he's got great sound and, uh, you know, that would be a perfect crossover. So let's get these 18-year-olds who listen to that. You know, you look at the rise of jazz. Kamasi Washington and out of that people like Ezra Collective and stuff and these kids now with uh, mood based playlists don't even know they're listening to jazz they just love the sound so you can look at the whole thing in the round and go wow there's a whole audience starting to discover deep catalogue and there are new bands writing based on that okay how do we move them how do we convert them how do we keep them um, that's what the industry should be doing we also had um, Noah Becker from AdRev on the podcast recently, f and we were focused on our uh, seismic shift around transparency becoming more and more inevitable because of access to data. But he was also making the case that not only is transparency inevitable, but there's a certain level of this transparency across entities, companies, that allows for unlocking additional revenue but in your case unlocking additional data which would unlock additional revenue and it, in a way your platform has done something interesting where you're not sharing the data directly but you guys are like a bit of a buffer so you can do the types of benchmarking that you're talking about so that everyone gets the benefit of having put their data into the pot without having to reveal too much about their own own data it's exactly. like you're an escrow account for data <laughs> exactly. in a way, but then drawing out learnings from it as well well we'd like to take that even further and say um because we're neutral, we're not a distributor, we're not a label, you know, we're not artist management, you know, none of those things, that um, we'd really like to offer up or build services that allow um, companies to put their data into the pot, exactly to your point, Dimitri, and we can then match it and feed it back. So an example would be Ticketmaster, Spotify, you don't trust each other. 
and you're not allowed to share that data with each other. But you have a lump of data that's identifiable. You put it into a safe bucket, like say an escrow, and Ticketmaster put theirs into that. We match it and we give it back to them. We don't give them anything they didn't have before, so they're not getting any information, uh, personal information they didn't have. But we can say this ticket fan also streamed these albums and this streaming fan bought these tickets so that they can do a better job of actually marketing to the right people and knowing, oh, okay, I need to push this type of ticketing deal to the streaming audience or I can sell more tickets to this crowd because, you know, they like Anna Calvi, therefore they're probably going to like some Vincent or something like that. Um, and the only way to do that is to have a neutral partner that will do that safely and give it back and assure that you're not breaking any... This brings up a good point about data everywhere is, I mean, because a lot of this is about how do you, there's so much data, how do you manage it? How do you get uh, lessons learned out of it? How do you unlock value from all this like fire hose of data that's happening? But your point is that one of the ways you do that is taking seemingly uh, separated data and then putting it back together, making correlations in a way or rebuilding relationships about a user from these different streams. So I'm just curious, what are some of the coolest ways you've already been able to take that? I mean, you mentioned the, the playlist thing where you've got subscription data and then user data and you can find out actual use of those playlists rather than just who's subscribed. But you know, what's, what's the likely number of streams that if you get put on that, you're likely to get and how valuable is that playlist as a result? That's one example. You mentioned this Ticketmaster Spotify thing. I think that was more like a, a future dream world. That's not yeah. something that's happening yeah. now. Yeah. So what, are there other co correlations between separate pipelines of data that you already have that have revealed interesting things? And then I'll follow that with what would be some other dream scenarios of taking these separate pipelines lines of data and creating new uh, lessons learned? Um, so because we have every user's identifier, it's a hash, it's not, we don't get their email addresses or anything like that, we can start doing things like cohort analysis. And in retail, they've been doing this for years. You know, they, they do this for a living. You, know, you wouldn't survive as a retail business, Amazon or anyone like that, if you didn't know how to analyze audience and do cohort analysis. Um, but a simple example would be being able to look and say, okay, I've got an album coming up, how many super fans? dedicated fans have I got that listen to more than X percentage of my music? And how many engaged with the new album? How many stayed with it for the first two weeks? And then how many carried on listening? And how many new ones did I add at that point? But then also saying, okay, because you've got that identified, go back and look through the catalog and say, what other stuff were they listening to? So where else could I be targeting? And a big percentage of my audience are listening to music in Chile, or a similar artist's audience are listening to music in Chile, and we're missing a trick. You know, we've not gone down there. We didn't realize we even had anything there. Um, so that's some of the stuff we do with existing data. The the real aim would be to say, okay, um, you know, getting feeds like Shazam, radio, ticket sales, um, you know, that type of information, and being able to blend that together. So for touring, for instance, that's one of the biggest risks. It's very very costly to tour get it wrong you know a lot of people get slapped on the wrist for it so you need to know that you know I've got an urban artist I've got a grime artist and I want to go to South America whereabouts have any urban artist played in the last six months at a 3,000 capacity or less venue um, right I can see that you know Rio or Sao Paulo is actually better than Rio and where are my audience now oh okay they're here cool right we'll go there and you could even start doing things like, you know, where are um, geopolitical 
Buffalo, Rochester, that's an example we always use. Two similar sized towns, which one should I take this band to? And just by running the numbers and, and looking at the data and everything that's available or could be available, I can see that Rochester is more of an Ivy League town. I'd go Doggers, uh, I would go Vampire Weekend and Arctic Monkeys. Buffalo, a bit more grungy, and I'd go uh, Doggers Dead and you know Cagey Elephant, something like that. And that's where you can start going, and you can stop losing money or taking such a big risk um, by just putting all of those together and getting the nuance out of them and getting correlations to your point. Um, and it's not making assumptions, but you can make a much better assumption if you're actually got a big, big swathe of data and using that to do the do the calculations. That's that's really interesting. It's I feel like about you know five or eight years ago before we started to see the beginnings of the uptick in in streaming, there was a large focus on flipping from the recorded side to the live side, seeing that the recorded side was just such a struggle at that moment. And you started to see more of those, th that was the moment of those 360 deals. I don't know if I've got the era correct, it might've been longer ago, but you started to see those 360 deals because I think the labels realized that there was not a lot of money on the recorded side at that moment and so push into those other directions. But what I hear you saying is that even with the money that's coming in and streaming, you now have this opportunity to leverage the data to combine the, I mean, the streaming is becoming more of a, in, a leading indicator of potential tour locations. Um, but, you know, the other thing I'm curious to ask you guys is when we think about all this data that's out there, what are some misperceptions that you're seeing uh, presented through the trade media or the social conversations about the music industry? Are there are there other pieces of data that or, or, or things that people are making some assumptions about data, maybe because they don't have all of the data that they're starting to push out there that you're like, mm, I don't think that's quite what's happening. There's a bit of snake oil. We, in the office, we do actually have a hat that's got a snake oil sticker on it. And if you come up with any bullshit metrics, you have to wear it for the day. <laughs> um, yeah, we would always say you've got to work with the facts. And um, you know, there's certain metrics around you know, listeners as opposed or you know, general listener numbers um, that have no context or correlation. They're just vanity metrics. Mm. Uh, and again, people saying, oh, you know, the industry's doing better than it ever has. That's the one that's annoying me at the moment. <laughs> oh, we're making more money than ever. <laughs> okay, great, making more money than ever. I'd like to see in a few years' time what the churn rate on artists are because it's turning into a sausage factory. It's just sh get these young kids and we've got this celebrity culture where we're obsessed with, you know, I'm going to be the next Ronaldo footballer and I'm going to be the next reality TV star. I'm going to be the next Adele. Yeah, great, brilliant. In you come, sing a song, piss off. You know, next. And so the industry's making money, but it's, it's, it's to your point earlier about the number of tracks being produced. They are just flying through. And all they're doing, just like share trading, is they're looking at the margin and going, are we still making money? Okay, keep it coming, keep it coming, keep it coming. They don't care about the career of the artist. Couldn't give a damn. Just get them through as quick as you can. And that's why actually we're, we're here uh, in Bloomington at the uh, Secret Canadian Label Conference. And it's just been nice watching a family you know, these are all labels that are all different. They're all sometimes competing for the same artist. But when they come together, they actually work as a collective and as a family. And you think, yeah, it can work. You know, stop fighting over territory and stop wall guarding your wall gardening your data and things like that. You know, work together, and you'll be fine, and you can nurture a career. But I just really hope the majors don't carry on just 
milking these poor kids because you know they're just going to end up having to you know go and get a job in a restaurant again and just sold a dream um yeah that so that that yeah that thing that the industry is doing better than ever i yeah i i take that with a pinch of salt well we're coming up on a half hour is there anything else we want to hit upon about data everywhere before we wrap it up for the day I think we've we've covered a lot of ground, uh, and uh, you guys were some of the first to buy badges to the Music Tectonics Conference. We, so. Oh, we were. We weren't number one, number two, though, were we? I, you might have been. You were pretty close. <laughs> you were pretty close. So, appreciate the support on coming out for that. Absolutely. And, no, we're really excited to come out. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And thanks so much for coming to Bloomington to do a podcast episode. Forget the comment about how you're here for something else. You came here for the podcast. We right? love. We, we love Bloomington. <laughs> we love. It's Bloomington. a very cool town. Thanks. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. Thank you. thank you. And thank you for joining us on the Music Tectonics podcast. We are not crazy about vanity metrics, but if you could hit subscribe on your <laughs> podcast <laughs> uh, platform of choice, it is one of the few ways we can find out. That, that, that's a lean-in metric, isn't it, it, it is It is a lean-in. Whether anyone listens to it once they've <laughs> subscribed. I don't know we, if they use this for sleep purposes or not. <laughs> I hope not. But So we don't know um, if you're going to listen, but the, the advantage is you will get notifications when new episodes come up about some of the seismic shifts. And the thing is, if you don't get those notifications and you don't keep informed about the seismic shifts, you might not have a job in a year. <laughs> you got to pay attention to these earthquakes in the music industry. And please check out musictectonics.com, our website. You can sign up for our newsletter, which will not only keep you informed of our podcast and blog posts, because we also write some original content there. Um, you also can get a $50 discount to the Music Tectonics Conference, which takes place October 28th and 29th in Los Angeles. You're going to want to be there. Um, lots of great new information of the moment. We'll be talking to record labels to hear from them what tools they're using to expose data and learn more. Um, we'll be hearing about new forms of paying out royalties. We'll be hearing about um, artificial intelligence being used to create music. We'll have the blockchain cage match. So <laughs> come check out the musictectonics.com website and keep, stay tuned for more episodes soon. You're listening to Music Tectonics.